The history of the world is a sequence of empires. They are born, they evolve, and then they die. They pass away. Where do we go from here? Life after empire, empire. Life doesn't die. Hello and welcome to another episode of Life After Empire. Today we're continuing our discussion about Israel and Palestine. And as we've said before, to really understand this conflict, you need to know something about the broader role that Israel plays in maintaining the imperialist world system in its current form. So in service of that goal, we're going to zoom out and discuss Israel's actions and influence beyond Palestine and beyond even the Middle East. In fact, we're turning our gaze to the relationship between Israel and Latin America. Joining us for today's conversation is Gabe Levine Drizzen. Gabe is a PhD student in history at NYU, focusing on Colombian agrarian reform and land occupations in the 1960s and 70s. You can find Gabe's writing and publications like In These Times, Southside Weekly, and most recently, the article that prompted our discussion today is titled Gustavo Petro Holds Firm on Palestine, and it was published by the North American Congress on Latin America. That's at NACLA.org. Gabe, thanks for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. So how did you come to this interest in studying Latin America? Well, that is a good question. I, I find myself on my uh, research year of the PhD program asking myself that a lot. Um, but I would say that I think I had kind of the very common prototypical trajectory of a young college student taking my first classes in U.S. history and just kind of, you know, reading about the history of U.S. imperialism in a region that's been seen as our backyard um, and growing up, I, I spoke Spanish and I think kind of it was always just an interesting uh, convergence of being kind of like a self-hating American, uh, <laughs> reading a little bit more history and then having the opportunity to travel and study abroad in, in Latin America. And academically, it started when I wrote my thesis on the FARC peace process in Colombia in 2016 uh, and 2017. But I think there was just kind of like, you know, reading about U.S. history and, and learning about our role in, in spreading blood and, you know, overthrowing democracies in, in Latin America was, you know, interesting and dark enough to, to make me kind of want to study it more. But I think that's <laughs> sadly a, a very common gringo trail of exploration that uh, is common, but probably maybe not common enough. But I think that's that's kind of how it's <laughs> Yeah. So you you grew up speaking Spanish, but you think of yourself as a gringo. I grew up speaking Spanish, like learning it in school. But my, you know, my okay. both my parents are white, and uh, and I think this will be relevant to to some of this conversation. But you know, I grew up in a relatively liberal Jewish uh, household. Um, whatever liberal means in the context of what you think about Israel today is, is that's a it's a very narrowing window about what you can use the term liberal for. But um, yeah, I, I always was really interested in. Spanish language and and got the chance to travel a lot and and weirdly enough um in a family of all white people from the suburbs of Chicago everybody in my family my brother my oldest brother was a Spanish teacher my other brother 
traveled extensively wow. through Latin America, and my sister speaks Spanish and and was really into kind of telenovelas and just so we just it was just something. It's a family affair. It is a family affair. Yes, and my brother's wife is Colombian, and I've. I'm in Bogota right now, and I've been very lucky to kind of we've we've had like a nice merging of the families. So the things that I study have felt, you know, as personal as they can for somebody who is definitively not from here and definitively not a Spanish speaker. But the first record of you that appears in writing on the Internet uh, or one of the first is a piece of writing you did for the Daily Northwestern back in you attended a, a Samantha Powers talk and you were critical of people who were feeling nostalgic for Obama during the the Trump era. And you pointed out that uh, Obama's view of Israel and the Israel-Palestine conflict was one of the most problematic aspects of his campaign. And here we are again talking about Israel-Palestine. So some of your early thinking already was taking this global perspective on imperialism and these conflicts. And so you're no stranger to thinking about Israel and Palestine in that sense, are you? It's funny to think of a, like an, an op-ed in the Daily Northwestern uh, watching some type of interest in journalism. But I remember <laughs> seeing like Samantha Power, like cackling and laughing about how like violent Trump was and just thinking about like what their policy in Yemen was and just being like, this is just like, this is crazy. And I think I, I remember also writing for the Daily Northwestern about the Iran deal and what the Obama administration did uh, with Cuba were two things that were relatively good and 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 something that he took a lot of flack for but then again the Iran deal you know loses a lot of its significance when you sign the biggest arms deal with Israel in the history of you know the United States so it's like on the one hand you have something that is seems progressive or positive and then you have the continuation of just like war by pushing a button that was characterizing so much the Obama administration but I think the other part of it that led me to focusing on kind of the, the role of the U.S. internationally is I uh, I studied abroad in Rwanda, you know, learned a lot about like humanitarian responses and kind of the, the way that elite liberals conceptualize the role of the United States in the world. And I think for a very, very, very small moment, I considered like, oh, like diplomat stuff or, you know, I had friends who were interested in becoming foreign service officers and stuff. And I think I quickly realized that that was not the path I wanted to take. But thinking about uh, you know, how folks in the U.S. and who, you know, have a conception of like how they want to deploy U.S. power in the world. You know, people like Samantha Power are seen as progressive allies. And, you know, she cut her teeth writing about and, and dealing with Rwanda. And I just think it was like kind of just like a moment of deep disgust with the liberal establishment. Not obviously it should go without saying, but not from some type of like conservative isolationist view, more just like you know, people thinking that they're they're different or or better mm-hmm. than a conservative option. A lot of that militarism is, is very similar, you know. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of liberal progressive types are looking at this moment in Israel and Palestine and wondering how to orient themselves to it. And there's, of course, the usual deluge of commentary and analysis that we're seeing, a lot of it kind of dehistoricizing, right? We're seeing this yeah. conflict discussed as if October 7th is day one. Yeah. Why Why do you think that is? I, I think there's kind of two things. And it's hard for me to, to figure out how I feel about them. But on the one hand, I recognize that like the, the historical projects I'm interested in while, you know, I do the hard work to find out what actually happened. And, you know, there are objective things that 
happen, you know? But I think that I'm also aware that the things that I'm interested in from a historical standpoint are related to my own politics or like related to some type of vision of how I want to change the world. And I think oftentimes the way that people talk about historians or, you know, bringing on experts or something, we treat like, you know, like it's, it's some type of like cold technical expertise. And I think right now people's conceptions of what history means are becoming, it's, it's becoming increasingly obvious that these things are extremely political. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of like breaking down this division that people have between history and politics. And so I think it's, it's not surprising that basic, basic tenets of history are being not only vehemently argued against, but, uh, you know, I think that the shocking thing for me is that like appeals to history as like a concept are deemed anti-Semitic in this moment. I mean, like the head of the UN, Antonio Guterres said something so basic, said something about how, you know, Hamas's attack could not be taken in a vacuum, you know, like that there is context. And the next statement condemned Hamas's violence or whatever. And he was, you know, just calls for his recognition, deemed an anti-Semite, you know, and it's just like the we're at a point where like appealing to history itself is seen as permitting some type of bloodletting in a way that is, again, not surprising when you think about the fact that history always serves political purposes. But I think it is surprising that extremely basic tenets of historical fact are just disagreed upon or said that they don't exist or said that like for you bringing them up, it's anti-Semitic. Yeah, it's really hard to think and to educate in a time when any type of contextualization is understood to be partisan uh, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. to be clear about what that partisanship is not bad or wrong, but that it's not opposed to the truth and it doesn't have to belong to a camp. Yeah, totally. There have been times during this process and like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm no expert historically and like be very upfront that like Israel is not my topic, but I think through like having the responsibilities of feeling like an American liberal, lowercase J Jew, because I don't really that much, but I'm, I'm, I don't practice at all, but I, I, you know, grew up in a household and I feel a unique responsibility to fear that the conflation between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism is disgusting and Mm -hmm. something I reject. I think that, you know, I've spent a lot of time educating myself on these issues. And it's, it is surprising to see really smart people who just like really don't know anything about Hamas, but like feel like they are, you know, like can can talk about it or, or experts. And, mm-hmm. and I think I'm not that expert. And I don't feel like I can talk about it, but I think it's just like there are very basic moments in the conflict between Israel and Palestine that when you talk to people who are kind of just like towing without really realizing they're doing that, like towing the IDF line, it's mm-hmm. just like, you bring something up that's like, no, like Hamas actually, you know, negotiated along the 67 borders in X, Y, and Z year, or like, you know, that there's, you know, the, the classic narrative that every time a peace talk has failed is because like Hamas withdrew from the negotiating table, which is just like a basic, incorrect notion of historical dialogues and peace processes. It's just like, if you bring that up, you're like an apologist for terrorism. It's just, it's just really, yeah, it's dark. I think that one thing that's so great about the article that you wrote recently is that it breaks the frame on the conversation by shifting that context from its very local form, the Israel-Palestine, what is Gaza, where are the borders, uh, and these kind of conflicts. Most of what I've read, um, the the book-length works that I've read, they contextualize what is uh, Israel as a historical project? What is it as a regional force? 
has all been uh, been about its role in the Middle East, and it's an important and significant uh, part of its history. But you introduce this context, which I think will be new for a lot of people. So how does Latin America relate to Israel? It's interesting because when talking about the relationship between Latin America and Israel and Palestine, I mean, the migration of like huge uh, swaths of both Jews and uh, Arab, majority Arab Christians at that time from Lebanon, what was that, you know, part of the Ottoman Empire, Lebanon, Palestine, and Syria, they both kind of happened to Latin America around the end of the 19th century. And this is, it was really interesting for me to write this article because this is not the history that I usually write. I'm a historian of modern 20th century Colombia, but you can see evidence of these migration patterns all over Colombia now. I mean, there are, there are parts of Colombia where like the diet, the last names, like it's very clear that there is this kind of long history of Arab migration. Um, when it comes to understanding the relationship between Latin America and Israel, there are specific places where like that migration was much bigger. Um, so it's interesting because I've been I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between migrants, uh, like Arab Christian, Arab Muslim migrants to Latin America and Jewish migrants to Latin America in the context of not only just Latin America, but the Americas itself, because I think the migration from Eastern Europe to Argentina, for example, of like a hundred thousand Jews in uh, the early 1900s. The political trajectory of Argentine Jews is like very similar to that of American Jews. In the 1910s and 20s, there's a lot of super radical Eastern European Jewish migrants who get jobs in factories and are like at that time racialized as other. And then through forms of upward mobility become more conservative economically and also become more conservative on the issues related to Israel. And so I think it's just worth saying before talking about Israel, which kind of ushers in a new paradigm for thinking about how these populations relate to the Middle East. Um, there's also a really gigantic migration to Latin America of Arab populations. And there are in the 90s and 2000s, there are a bunch of presidents um, in Argentina and Ecuador who have last names that are very clearly uh, of Syrian or Lebanese descent. And I think right now, I was just looking up before this, I think there's like 20 to 30 million um, Latin Americans of Arab descent in Latin America. And I think that the right. Jewish population is is much smaller than that. But uh, but I think the, and, and this is another thing that I was really excited to kind of look into for the story is one thing that I write about the actual relationship with these, these countries with Israel is it was really surprising for me in 1948 that of the 33 votes that Israel received in favor of its partition plan in 1947, which kind of laid the groundwork for it after its war to be recognized as you know, the state of Israel, 13 of those 33 votes came from Latin American countries. At, at first, I was like, wow, that's, I did not know that, you know, that Latin American countries gave such a boost to the political project of Zionism at that time. But on the one hand, I think we have to reckon even in our deepest moments of kind of anti-colonialism. And I have a deep distrust and historical disgust for the way that Israel has, has meddled in the region. Um, but in the fifties and sixties, Israel could credibly present itself as having some type of anti-colonial aura to parts of the kind of quote unquote developing world. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the Soviet union recognized it immediately. I think it was the first country. Um, and there were moments in which, independent of kind of like the violence that it, it placed on its Arab population, country saw it as having like a similar developmental problem and, and kind of it formed part of, of that. 
in a way that is definitely not easily grappled with now. I mean, Israel is not necessarily predominantly white, but like a, a population that we see as completely different from those populations and, and that a population that we see as doing violence to a lot of the developing world actually was seen in a, in a, in a completely different light for a lot of the 50s and 60s. So on the one hand, um, that historical messiness of realizing that like there was some type of kind of anti-colonial, in an anti-colonial, but it was like it was not a kind of seen mm-hmm. as an imperial project from the beginning necessarily by everybody. The process behind which 13 of those 33 votes went to bolstering the UN partition plan was also deeply implicated in colonial processes uh, because what a famous uh, Jewish migrant from, I believe, Moldova, who settled in the U.S. South, his name is Sam Zemere, who became in the future the, the head of the United Fruit Company. He started his own banana company and then the United Fruit Company bought it and then he became president to bail it out. He, you know, is the original banana man controlling Latin American governments or, you know, exercising a big influence of Mm -hmm. Central American, quote unquote, banana republics. And he whipped a lot of the votes in favor of that partition plan. And I I was just kind of looking into it and and really realized that. And the story behind Israel's founding and its support from Latin America is tricky in that way because it is rooted in that colonial history of just like concentrated economic power and imperialism of like literally Sam Zemre called up these governments and was like, how much will it cost to, to change your vote? Wow. You know, and so it's it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty bleak. Um, but when it comes to the things that I study, and I think we can get into this more when talking about settler colonialism, but I think there is that kind of long running, extremely racist myth, but that Israel kind of like made the desert bloom and that they're they they are this kind yeah. of agricultural technology powerhouse, which they are, but there's also, you know, that's founded on the idea that the population that was there when they settled there didn't know how to plant anything. And so I think it's been interesting for me to kind of deal with, on the one hand, thinking about Latin America's relationship to Israel through the lens of those violent processes and also recognizing that in the archive, I'll just see like a, a letter written from Colombian campesinos to their government being like, we want to be like Israel because like they're really good at agriculture. Mm. It's like, okay, like it's it's not all just like Israel bad, you know? Um when it comes to kind of the more concrete relationship and the way it developed between Latin America and Israel, I think it's a it's at the general level uh, fits a, a similar pattern with with certain exceptions, uh, and Colombia fits into it pretty well at moments and, and diverges in others. But from the fifties and sixties, Latin America remained kind of like a, with the exception of Cuba, Latin America remained a pretty solid block voting for issues related to Israel at the UN. I, I read somewhere that like. I think in the 60s, Latin America as a bloc voted more in favor of uh, UN resolutions in favor of Israel than even like the US. Like they were really solidly at the level of a region, wow. a uh, a champion of, of things related to Israel. And then I think that became a little more difficult to sustain and started changing. At least scholars who started this much more than I do say that it was in like kind of as a result of the wars in 1967, but especially the war in 1973 that kind of shed any veneer of Israel not being kind of another imperialist power from its image. Um, And we were talking about this before, but I think also there is in the early 70s, like a concerted effort among certain Latin American governments to establish developmentalist alternatives, a new international economic order, kind of focusing on, you know, non-alignment and the predominance of Arab capital and Arab oil money at that moment kind of facilitated this shift towards uh, the Arab world and, and away from Zionism. 
at the level of the region on the whole. I mean, you know, there are still governments that are deeply allied with Israel, but that early moment in the 70s is super important. And then you see countries in Latin America starting to vote in the UN to recognize the PLO or starting to kind of shift a little bit away from that. And that process of Latin American governments as a whole kind of shifting away from their earlier support from Zionism is only further accelerated by Israel's bloody and genocidal support for a plethora of Cold War dictatorships that got too openly violent for the United States to support. (laughs) And so it's, and this is, I kind of think what most of my articles about Israel often served as kind of like a Cold War proxy Mm -hmm. for dictatorships in Latin America. It immediately stepped in and recognized Pinochet's government, um, which was really interesting to me because they actually had a pretty good, a decent relationship with Salvador Allende, which I didn't know. He he had planned to visit Israel and, and hmm. um, was friends with some cabinet members of the labor government. But yeah, stepped in and recognized Pinochet, funded a deeply anti-Semitic Argentine military government, funded the government of El Salvador. And I talk about in the piece, it's really bloody history with Guatemala. And Ariel Sharon, the then defense minister, visited Honduras to talk openly with the you know, Nicaraguan Contra troops that it was funding to seek to overthrow the newly powerful revolutionary Sandinista government. Yeah. And I think when thinking about how to deal with Israel's influence worldwide, I think it's useful. And again, this is not my subject, but for the scholarship I was reading about it, I think scholars have done a lot recently to not necessarily decenter the U.S., but understand that Israel had its own reasons for doing these things. The main one and the overwhelming reason was an economic market for just pumping guns into these Latin American countries. I mean, I think at one point Israel was the biggest export of arms to the region, and it, I think Latin America was more than a third of its market. Um, it, wow! Just pumping so many guns into these countries. But there was also a reason that politically and ideologically, I think Israel supported the U.S.'s goal to oppose progressive nationalist groups um, and groups like the FSLN or the, the Sandinistas were openly friendly with groups like the PLO, you know, so I think it it, it made sense for them at a certain point. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Gustavo Petro, uh, the current president of Colombia, yeah. has a personal relationship in this regard to Palestinian militants of the past. He's talked about his time in, in Libyan training camps side by side with people associated with the PLO. Yeah. That's an interesting history to think about now, especially as he's taken these strident, critical, um, this, mm-hmm. this really critical stance towards current Israeli policy. I wonder how that's shaped his perspective. It's Useful to understand that like the anti-colonial movements of like the 60s and 70s and kind of like the tri-continental movement and like OSPAL and all these meetings in Havana in like 1967, where there's kind of a more concerted effort to make like a collaborative international guerrilla struggle that kind of links up, you know, mm-hmm. um, not actually forming like one army, but like trading guerrilla tactics, you know, and in the moments of Che, like actually comprising and sharing like some type of guerrilla struggle and, and trading tactics. And I think that moment, it's it's hard to kind of regress, like how international all this stuff was. And, you know, you would have people training in the Soviet Union or having people trading in parts of Europe where they were learning alongside people from Latin America. Militants fighting independent struggles from the continent of Africa would, would meet people from Latin America and really trade these things. And I think it's no coincidence that a lot of members of 
what was called the pink tide, you know, the, the first pink tide in Latin America, where this slate of progressive governments across the region in a bunch of different countries, you know, had very direct experiences at the hands of like military dictatorships that had tortured them, you know, or they were guerrillas in the case of Uruguay. Um, if we don't look at it historically, like the both linking kind of the role of, of dictatorships and the people who are opposing them and in, in influencing the way that they sought to gain power and how they rule once they were in the pink tide, it, it seems like what Latin America is doing right now is completely out of the blue. But, you know, in the first pink tide from vaguely like mid to late 2000s, maybe a little early in the case of Venezuela, until like it's it's kind of fall in the mid 2010s. I mean, in certain countries like, you know, Brazil and Argentina and Bolivia, where there was some kind of, uh, it fell back a little bit. But in 2014, like Latin American governments were the ones internationally who during Israel's assault on Gaza, unilaterally, those left pink tie governments were very strong in their denunciation. I mean, Bolivia in 2014 called Israel like a terrorist state. You know, I mean, th these things have happened before. And I think you see a lot of the groundwork leading up to how the reactions in Latin America amongst both right and left wing governments, you see a lot of that groundwork being laid kind of after the fall of the first pink tide, where you see this rise of right wing governments in Brazil with Jair Bolsonaro and, you know, in Argentina and Chile, but less kind of explicitly right wing. Um, and you, this is again, why I think it's important to think about it at the level of the continents along the whole Western hemisphere, because after the fall of those left wing governments in a lot of these countries in Latin America, in the first pink tide, Israel kind of became and like merged with this like global right-wing populism and just kind of like stood in as a symbol for reaction for a lot of people, you know? And so Jair Bolsonaro loves Israel, you know? There were January 6th protesters at the Capitol who like waved flags of Israel, you know? It, it kind of like merged into this image of just like, for, for the one, like Islamophobia, another like strong ethnic nationalism, and very importantly too, also something at the level of the, the hemisphere and also kind of deeply rooted in some type of anti-Semitism, if you think about it for more than a second, is like the evangelical support for Israel, which is just like rooted in the idea that Israel will be the place where all the non-Christians burn in hell when uh, they ascend hmm. to uh, where the, the scene of the last battle That's is. That's right. Um, Except but, for a third. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no, it's cool. I mean, it, the, if you repent now, the, the Jews can ascend too. But then I would say that the, the, last, the last context would say, um, you know, after the fall of that first pink tide, there is now what is being labeled the second pink tide. And that is in Mexico with AMLO, that's with Petro in Colombia, that's with Boric in Chile, that's with governments in Argentina and for a while uh, or for, for a bit in Peru, and then also in Honduras. And it's no coincidence that these governments are the ones who are kind of leading that front because their countries were the places of like extreme genocidal Israeli violence, you know, so it, it really doesn't seem that surprising, but it has been personally, at least for me, studying Colombia, it's been personally inspiring to see how far and away and like more vulnerable Petro put himself being kind of the first person to do that in a country with like an extremely unique history with Israel. But yeah, I'm curious if you can talk more about that because I had never heard of this idea of a special relationship between Israel and Colombia. Uh, I knew that Colombia was an important partner of the U.S., in Latin America. And of course, we all know about the special relationship between the US and Israel, but mm -hmm. this, this uh, Colombia-Israel axis was not something that was familiar to me. So how does that uh, develop? I mean, how strong is it? Is it fair, do you think, to 
use the same kind of terms of there's a special relationship between Colombia and Israel. So Colombia is kind of an exception when it comes to the rest of the pink tide in those early 2000 moments, because it's in the early 2000s that Colombia has one of its most right-wing, kind of right-wing populist with like a strong evangelical base under Alvaro Uribe. And it's that moment when from 2000, 2008, that Colombia is waging a war. And, you know, it's tough because they, they, you know, they do need, the Colombian government like needs military training because they are like fighting guerrillas that are, you know, rooted in deep historical grievances and violence from the state against them. But, you know, they are kidnapping people and it's a, it's a really violence of a war. And so it's, it's tough because at that moment, Alvaro Uribe like does have some type of kind of popular legitimacy and, and people who are not even necessarily conservative understand the way that that war was waged. Um, but I think the the parallel, and I'll, I'll get into the history of kind of Israel and Colombia in the region, but I think it's really from 2000, 2008 that you really see this parallel of the way that Israel wages its war against its Palestinian population, because for the one, it, it relies a lot on kind of paramilitary state-linked groups, but also just kind of like the violent othering ideology and just kind of this like, you know, using the war as a way to wage a wider war on civil society. And I think reading more about Colombia in the early 2000s, it just became very clear to me like how how similar that is. I think when it comes to the special relationship, uh, Colombia is always seen in the region as having a special relationship with the U.S. I mean, that relationship mm. goes very deep. Um, part of the reason that Israel's relationship with Colombia at the level of military training is a little bit different is Colombia didn't have, with the exception of kind of a very brief moment in the 50s, it didn't have like a military dictatorship that ruled and massacred its people in the way that Central American governments or those in the Southern Cone did. It was It was a bit distinct. Um, it was extremely distinct. I mean, it was it was uh, it was called the National Front regime for 16 years. They kind of alternated power between liberals and conservatives in an atmosphere that is you could characterize as repressive in some ways, but you know it wasn't openly kind of genociding its own people in a similar way. But yeah, Colombia's relationship with the U.S. has kind of really deep roots. I mean, Colombia I think was the only country in Latin America I believe to send troops with the U.S. to the Korean War. I mean, they sent five thousand troops, and I, I've been to a couple of military day parades because Colombians love their holidays. It's great, mm. and uh, you know you'll just see like a battalion of old people just kind of and yeah, here come the veterans of the Korean War. And I just like imagine thinking about like what the hell do people think? they were doing there like it's just but yeah it's, it's that that relationship yeah. goes for a long way in Colombia uh, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that I study is that Colombia was the site of first Peace Corps in Latin America it got so much funding from the Alliance for Progress it was the site for kind of a really deep U.S. aid presence uh, and seen as a really key U.S. ally the role of Israel and its relationship with Colombia I think starts more in the 80s, when kind of they started receiving more military aid from Israel, at when the really complex war, uh, long-running civil war between left-wing guerrillas, the state, paramilitary organizations, like a, just kind of a plethora of different organizations. The main one that I've studied and the kind of the most predominant one was the, the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. But uh, in the 80s, they started receiving uh, a lot of military training from Israel, and I think the, the main way that the relationship between Israel and Colombia is special is that when you think about kind of how wars have evolved in the 80s and 90s, like against the backdrop of the wider neoliberalization of the region and kind of like the withering of the state, you see 
a really deep reliance on kind of paramilitary forces and like privatized security arms of the Colombian state in this case to wage its war. And so those paramilitary organizations, and this was something that I just like was shocking to me and I had not realized, the paramilitary organizations that started training in the 80s, which over time would kind of agglomerate into one bigger group called the AUC or the United Self-Defense Forces of Colombia, which formed in the 1990s but kind of had its roots earlier. Its main founder, a guy named Carlos Castaño, in the 1980s went to Israel and received military training. And the whole idea of those armed self-defense groups he's written in his memoir was like all about seeing how Israeli society was organized. And he saw that, you know, he said that all Israeli civilians were soldiers, um, which is something that has kind of come up. And I think it's it's worth talking about when it comes to kind of October 7th, but he, it was very clear that Israel was an inspiration to Colombia mm. and the kind of paramilitarized waging of the war through like this murky state private connection in Colombia. I mean, I, I write this in the, in the piece, but you know, Gustavo Petro has mentioned by name, the Israeli paramilitary state mercenary guy who came, his name's Yair Klein, who came and trained, a bunch of Colombians, um, a bunch of a bunch of people uh, within these paramilitary organizations that, from the kind of ten to fifteen years in which they were ruling, committed the vast majority of human rights violations in the Colombian conflict. The the links between the state of Israel and its kind of privatized security arm and its kind of mercenary exports abroad, kind of mirrored a lot of the way that the Colombian state itself waged its war at home, linking with paramilitaries that had really deep connections to the Uribe government. And yeah, I think that the thing that I found really interesting, because it comes so much later, being in kind of the, the 2000s, when there's really that deepening connection between the war that Alvaro Uribe is waging kind of against both the FARC guerrillas and, 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 you know, actually like making a concerted effort to, in the eyes of many people, make the country safer, and also just waging a violent war against all forms of civil society. It's really in that moment that the parallels between what's going on in Israel and Gaza and Colombia and its civil society that really comes to the fore. And this thing that did not make it into the piece, but this tweet that I saw was really, really poignant about uh, Colombian reactions right now to what's going on in Israel and Gaza. And it, it, just translating, uh, somebody tweeted, I think he works for the government. I have to look a little, little bit more into it. But he says, you know, this history we already lived. Those who denounced the paramilitary massacres were accused of being friends of the FARC. Uh, they were accused of not rejecting terrorism. And as so being accused, the massacre of them, the stealing of their land was justified. And it, the tweet ends with change FARC for Hamas and campesinos for Palestinians. And you'll see that we've already lived this. So I think there's kind of this like forced way in which people who are not at all siding with you know Hamas in this case, but are trying to end the genocide of Palestinian people who may or may not have anything to do with that group. It doesn't really necessarily matter when talking about genocide. Mm -hmm. And similarly, those who in any way kind of would denounce the way that the Colombian government was waging its war against FARC and civil society writ large were just kind of flunked in as terrorists. And I think it's really in that moment that you see like a kind of an ideological overlap between them. And I think the the last thing I would say about that overlap is that it's been really useful for me to kind of interrogate what exactly, you know, settler colonialism is and, and, and how historically people talk about it, because there is this way in which that kind of state private actor 
agreement to kind of expand the frontier and displace in the case of Colombia, um, you know, Afro-Colombian indigenous people and campesinos from their land and bring those, those lands into the market. And in the case of, of Israel, arming settlers to displace Palestinians from their land in the, in the Jordan Valley. It's, 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 it's really eerily similar. I'd love to hear more about that because there seems to be some solidarity protests that are emerging in various countries in Latin America, led by indigenous or racialized populations who see a similarity in this process of the, the historical colonial dispossession of uh, indigenous peoples across Latin America and indigenous people in Palestine. And there's it's a fraught and complex and sometimes very broad concept. I mean, colonialism uh, in, in many ways in like a U.S. academic context has become a buzzword that means almost anything, but there are particularities to the specific forms of settler colonialism as a project mobilized as a form of control over these, mm -hmm. these populations. How, how tight is that analogy? Like you say, it's eerily similar. Mm -hmm. And I want to draw out what are the specific, what does that yeah. look like on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that it's important. I like that you kind of talked about the historical contingencies and ways that colonialism can kind of manifest in different moments in different ways, because I think oftentimes we just kind of say like colonialism or settler colonialism, as in like, this government is doing something bad. And like that, you know, and, and there are like very right. specific material and social and political meanings attached to what we say when we mean, you know, settler colonialism. And I think, uh, you know, Patrick Wolf has written a lot about settler colonialism and kind of like the logics that undergirded and kind of like the theory of, a, of, of elimination that undergirds the project of settler colonialism, which can have negative processes, which are just kind of liquidating a people, but also settler colonialism as a project is undergirded by what he calls kind of the positive aspects of elimination, which are kind of like constructing a new society and kind of assimilationist pressers and the way that it relates to its labor market. And so, you know, I think the, the one thing to understand at first is that colonialism is not really the term that I historically would be interested in using when talking about the comparison between them, because, you know, Latin American governments became independent like 200 years ago, you know, so I think, I think settler colonialism as a framework is more useful for understanding the way that indigenous groups are dispossessed kind of ongoing by elites in the in the capital that are kind of coded as as more white um, i think it i think it works a little better but i think when it comes to the way that people have been analyzing kind of october 7th and kind of how we should feel about it i think settler colonialism is a really useful framework for starting and a, a useful framework for understanding kind of key aspects of israel's expansion and its history and its reliance on private actors and a lot of the founding myths around israel um, and I can get to how that relates to Latin America, but I think the main thing to point out with settler colonialism, and this is something that, that Patrick Wolf talks about a lot, is that it's it's an ongoing process. It's not something that ends. It's not a historical event. You're not just like, okay, settler colonialism, like it's done. It's like, no, it's it's not just like independence. It's an ongoing structure of power that systematically erases indigenous people, but it does that erasing through very distinct modes. When I've been thinking about the way that Israel is relating to its Palestinian population, the ways in which the settlers who originally founded the United States related to the indigenous population in the United States, what would become the United States, was different than the way that Israel is relating to its population now, both being settler colonial. One way that I've been thinking about the usefulness of settler colonialism as a concept 
is that those shifts over time as to how they relate to those populations can kind of indicate whether or not we're going on the course towards a genocide, for example, right? Because Israel is much less interested in forms of assimilating its population than it used to be or that other groups who have been settler colonial enterprises have been. Or it is also becoming much less dependent on Palestinian labor than it than it used to be. And so I think people use mm-hmm. settler colonialism as a kind of analytical framework for understanding his, the historical evolution of how these settler colonies relate to those populations and drawing from that prognostications as to kind of what may be coming. Um, specifically on the ground as, as the historical ways that settler colonialism has emerged in Latin America and been kind of related to Israel. I think the the really scary example is the one that I use in the piece about Guatemala, in which elites in the Guatemalan capital who are coded more as white than the indigenous population in the countryside, many of these elites working for the, the Ministry of Agriculture, go to Israel to receive training and come back and implement like a, a form of kind of rural reorganization of the countryside that is pretty explicitly modeled on some type of like kibbutz system. And undergirding that is this really dark security project that like leads to hundreds of thousands of, of Mayan being exterminated with Israeli guns in a process that Guatemalan elites are openly calling the quote Palestinianization of the Guatemala countryside. So it's, it's really, it's really dark, but I think the thing about settler colonialism that I find interesting about that is agriculture is such a deep part of the way that settler colonies justify their land expansion. And, you know, with Israel, there's that historical myth that Israel came to that land and, quote, you know, made the desert bloom. And there were just nomadic Arab populations who never knew how to make food and had no agricultural sediments. And then the kibbutz came and it was brilliant. And I think settler colonial myths about who is and who are not productive Israel offered to Latin American governments kind of a toolkit of ideological justifications of who is and who isn't disposable when it, that could be laundered through the lens of productivity. And it just so happened that those people who could be deemed disposable because of their kind of lack of agricultural prowess or because of their security threat were racialized others who became exterminated with Israeli training. On the ground, those examples of the 80s in Guatemala are really, really harrowing because they kind of bring together all of the kind of settler colonial toolkit of kind of the the founding myths, the kind of racialization processes, the ideological justifications, those agricultural, it just, it feels really dark. I'm curious if there's parallels on the side of uh, resistance as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of your research has been going into these struggles for land Mm -hmm. in both the urban and rural setting and and struggles over land have to involve these struggles over what agriculture is going to look like and who's in control of that. And obviously, land back is a slogan which applies very broadly, even if people are envisioning maybe a different way of going about it. But are there similarities in the resistance as well? That's a really interesting question. I think like you know, land the the kind of land resistances that I study often in in Colombia, at least, take the form of kind of two forms. It's either armed guerrilla struggle that has its roots in kind of like the dispossession of campesino populations. And Colombia has also been the site of urban guerrillas. I mean, Petro was a, a guerrilla with an organization that, at least in its origins, was an urban guerrilla. Then the M nineteen kind of moved to the countryside. But I think it is really interesting to me, and this is something I wanted to bring up when it comes to how useful colonialism as a framework can be. 
I think it's a really good starting point for all of the reasons which I just talked about. But I think just as the modalities through which like settler colonialism can seek to spread itself, you know, in some moments being more assimilationist than others, those things change. The resistance to colonialism often changes too. And I think when people think of the word colonialism and kind of anti-colonialism, I think we're often tethered to kind of a vision of 50s, 60s, 70s national liberation struggles that I think does not necessarily set us up best to debate what's going on now in a context that is related, but a little bit different. And I think one example of that is debates about whether or not Hamas is the, the correct or just vehicle for the liberation of Palestinians, which having nothing to do whether or not you agree or disagree with whether or not the use of their violence is justified. It's like comparing October 7th to like the Tet Offensive, which a lot of people did, doesn't necessarily seem like it maybe gets us that far because you can have a debate about whether or not Israelis living in the south of Israel are civilians or soldiers. They're not U.S. Marines. You know, it is it is yeah. a big thing. And I think when it comes to settler colonialism, one other thing I would say is that Again, colonialism, a framework definitely gets us places. And I think it is it, it enables us to put kind of Hamas's struggle within a larger context. But I think there have been segments of very small segments of the left. I think people kind of have been arguing uh, in bad faith that there are large swaths of people who are against kind of the genocide against people in Gaza, that they're somehow like pro-violence. I think that people have a lot more nuanced views about what's going on. But I think there has been this kind of like weird subset debate about if Israel is a settler colonial project, were the people dancing at a festival in Israel, like, should we cheer the fact they got killed? And I just think, I think that's like pretty unproductive and does not do good for kind of a wider cause of denouncing what is a settler colonial project to kind of be stuck in these 60s, 70s. No, but they're not civilians. Like this is a liberation struggle and we should celebrate that. And I just think it that, that could be one of the limits of drawing upon settler colonialism as a framework to understand today. And I also, I really have not been able to think about, like, I, I think there's also a distinction. I don't really know because this isn't my expertise, but there's clearly a distinction to be made between when talking about settler colonial enterprises, the way that Israel relates to Gaza and the West Bank. Though it is used as kind of a violent justification for starving the people of Gaza and, and bombing them into oblivion. Like there are not settlers there, you know, it's, it's, it's not anymore, you know, and that's not an excuse. It's just, it's a, it's a different thing. And mm-hmm. I think it's there where we get to start thinking about how settler colonialism could transition to some form of genocide, that it's, it's useful, but I, I really don't know how to think about Gaza when, when coming to like, it's so uniquely violent and, and terrible that I really like, don't have a historical framework for understanding any type of kind of political entity like that. But um. well, here's another question of uh, potential historical parallel in uh, an article on our Substack. What can you do for Palestinian liberation? We reaffirm the importance of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement as part of a political strategy for opposing Israeli apartheid. And of course, one of the most frequent comparisons we get to Israeli apartheid. The reason that we have the word apartheid is because of the South African apartheid. And you've written about sanctions in the past and looked at how they're very often used as a a tool of horrible uh, oppression of, of nations and how, in general, a regime of sanctions mostly hurts the people rather than the regime that's being targeted. And on the other hand, 
you point out that there's a, a difference between the top-down imposition of sanctions mm-hmm. and bottom-up calls for them, as happened in South Africa, mm-hmm. uh, and was successful in mobilizing international solidarity, um, and likewise BDS as a part of the liberation struggle. So I'm curious about the tension here mm-hmm. and whether you hold to that distinction as being an important one, the the top down versus the bottom up and what we expect in terms of the outcomes of a, of a BDS tactic, you know, d- is it effective? Yeah. Are sanctions, can we expect them to work? Obviously the, the important context behind talking about whether or not sanctions in the case of Israel are effective is starting with the point that they've been labeled economic terrorism and, and that, mm. you know, you know, I mean, you see just like this horrific climate in the U.S. of, you know, making it literally illegal to sign something that, you know, has yeah. EDS. And you see what just happened with kind of like student groups at Columbia being banned. And I think in, in again, not in any way to like justify or not justify any type of violence, but it's like it, it's very clear that closing paths of kind of nonviolent resistance to groups that have historically tried to practice that path, it doesn't leave people with many options. I mean, that's pretty obvious. But I think the the bottom-up, top-down distinction, I mean, sadly, I think historically, most of the examples I can think of when it comes to kind of top-down government sanctions are kind of more reactionary, right-wing sanctions against governments like Venezuela or Iran that starve people and, you know, or like what the U.S. did to Iraq. I think the the reason that that article I wrote kind of focuses on kind of bottom up calls for sanctions for one that is what BDS was and I think people mm-hmm. kind of forget I mean we had kind of a kerfuffle at at NYU where I study where the where the graduate union reissued in the wake of October 7th a, a call for BDS which wasn't really anything to do with justifying or not justifying violence it's just that sanctions work when they have material effects and when it's trade unions and like a material call from workers in Palestine who are calling for something, it's more than just symbolic condemnation, which it is, but BDS is rooted in economic material consequences for these decisions. And I think, sadly, um, I think the relationship theoretically between Israel and Colombia or Israel and Bolivia is probably not enough for them to be like, we should change our act. We lost the market for X, Y, and Z. But I think that even in those countries, uh, if Colombia were to go to the route of actually trying to sanction some type of trade, you know, and the, the exchange of, of weapons and purchasing of weapons uh, from Israel to Colombia stopped, you would think that that responded to kind of that bottom up pressure. You know, I mean, like these politicians in these countries are not just like random left wing ideologues. It's like there's like a popular base of support for people who really are horrified. And for me, just like being in Colombia right now, I mean, it's been really hard to not be in the United States and I'm from New York or I live in New York and like those protests have been really inspiring for me and I I feel like I would have thought of them as kind of a space to kind of work through my own deep existential dread with counteracting that with solidarity but you know there have been extremely beautiful and militant protests in Colombia and I think that Petro's move to do these things came not just from him. These these BDS movements often, yeah, have to kind of arise from some type of bottom-up approach. I think that I'm a little doubtful or or a little like pessimistic about how effective kind of a BDS campaign can be right now. We're saying anything even remotely 
not even critical, but like mentioning anything about context about what Israel's doing is deemed like support for genocide of Jews. I guess it's it's like this really weird dark parallel. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just like yeah. I mean, every conversation starts with "Do you condemn Hamas? Do you condemn Hamas?" And it's like, mm-hmm. what are we doing? People are you know dying by the tens of thousands in Gaza. Why are we having this discussion? But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I. I I would be interested to talk more to kind of organizers on the ground in kind of the communities I'm a part of who are, you know, part of whether it's like, you know, the Palestinian youth movement or organizations in New York that are really fighting that fight about what the state of BDS now is. Cause I really don't quite know. I, you just really hear about it in the negative about people getting in trouble for supporting it. So I really, I can't, I can't really don't know. Yeah. Well, we have limited means for democratic struggle and they are being very actively repressed through legal means, through the kind of discursive pressures Mm -hmm. that people face and through economic pressures that people face in their jobs. And it seems to me like in so many places where you would expect voices of resistance, there is an eerie silence mm-hmm. and it's a very present absence. Yeah. And all we can do is, well, I won't say all we can do is keep talking about it, but we do yeah. need to keep talking about yeah, it yeah, yeah. and um, and fighting the good fight. Uh, Gabe, thanks so much for this wide ranging, fascinating uh, history of the relationship between Latin America and uh, Israel, really illuminating stuff. So thank thank you. Thank you for having me on and giving me the chance to kind of, uh, you know, spread out my anger and disgust in the world into something a little more hopeful. So thank you. Thanks for tuning into the show today. If you'd like to keep up with everything that we're doing at After Empire, you can check out our Substack at www.lifeafterempire.org. We've got weekly writing, and of course, there'll be links to the show, and that's also the place where, if you have it in your heart and in your wallet, you could make a contribution to uh, supporting the work we do, or just leave us comments and notes about what you'd like to hear next. Until next time.